This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to journalist Sally Hayden and she's going to be speaking about an investigation she's been doing for over a year now, which basically shows that the EU and to a lesser extent the UN has been facilitating the abuse of refugees in Libyan detention centres. These centres are run by militias, the EU basically gives money to the Coast Guard to stop the refugees getting to Europe and kind of doesn't really care what happens to them after that. But if you listen, Sally will explain it all. If you like what we're doing at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front. There are bonus episodes, all sorts of stuff there. Patreon.com slash popular front. Um... I guess, I guess, firstly, maybe we start at the beginning with this story, right? There's a situation in Libya. Um, you've been helping these people for a long time now, documenting it really, really well on Twitter and with articles and what have you. Maybe you can just start at the beginning and, and tell us what this is all about. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess to explain how I came upon this story, I need to go back a little bit more, which was um, in 2017, I got a grant to look into EU funding in um, North Africa. So specifically, there's this what's called the EU Trust Fund for Africa, which is a multi-billion euro fund effectively aimed at kind of preventing migration to Europe by, um, you know, both increasing border security in, in a lot of countries in Africa. And also they have kind of like livelihood programs and things like that. So I went to Sudan um to, to partially to look at that and also just to look at what the situation was in terms of refugees and migrants trying to get from there to Europe. Um, as we all know, there was the what they called the migration crisis around 2014, 2015, 2016, when, um, you know, more than a million refugees and migrants came to Europe um, looking for safety or looking for opportunity as well. And so this fund came out of that. Um, so I went to Sudan and I ended up reporting on something a bit different, which was uh, allegations of corruption in the United Nations Refugee Agency. And what I was being told there was that um, refugees there were being asked for tens of thousands of dollars to be resettled to a safe country. So um, essentially it was difficult for them legally to get to safety um, and so they were turning to illegal routes to try and get to countries like uh, European countries. And so um, that story came out and the resettlement program actually ended up being suspended, um, I guess, as a result of the investigation into corruption there. But because of that, a lot of refugees in Sudan knew my work. And so, um, and yeah, so my name would have been pretty well known. So last September 2018, um, I was at home in London, actually, and I got a message from a refugee who said he was locked up in a Libyan prison and that war had broken out around them and that there were 500 of them, men, women and children, who had all been abandoned and that before this they had been detained. They had all tried to get to Europe. They had been caught on the sea, brought back, locked up and now um, abandoned without food or water in the middle of a war zone. And so for me, I kind of was thinking, wow, like, can this be real? Um, I, I really wasn't sure. 
And so I did everything I could to verify it. I contacted sources in Tripoli. I asked them, was there really a war? Um, was this place inaccessible? Is it possible that there was a what they called a prison or I'd find out was a detention center there? And it turned out the whole story was true. Um, and so I guess that's kind of a long-winded way of explaining how I came into this, which is um, finding out, which I, I kind of had heard about already, but I wasn't really aware of the scale of this, that tens of thousands of refugees and migrants have been on boats that have been intercepted by the Libyan Coast Guard who are supported by the EU for the past two and a half years um, and brought back and locked up indefinitely in Libya. And yeah, so I mean... Yeah, after after I put that, as you said, I put it on Twitter because I'm a freelancer and I didn't have an immediate publication and I really wanted to get help for these people. And I also contacted organizations on the ground, but they all said it's too dangerous. They couldn't get to them. So um, so I started publicizing it and um, also started publishing articles. And my number ended up being passed around a lot of different detention centers. So within a week, I was being contacted by people from, I'd say, eight or nine different detention centers who were all looking for help. They aren't allowed to have phones, so the phones were hidden. And um, like, yeah, they'd like message in the toilet, message under a blanket, um, stuff like that. And yeah, we're basically just calling out saying that nobody had been listening. No one knew that this was happening and that they were in a life or death situation and needed and needed help. Right. So, so let's just scale back a minute. When you said they were they were abandoned, you know, they've been abandoned and they're stuck in this prison. What do you mean abandoned? Abandoned by who? So what happened in that particular situation was that there are Libyan guards who are supposed to be guarding them. And um, the detention centres, most of them are officially run by the Department for Combating Illegal Migration, which is associated with the Tripoli-based Government of National Accords, the UN-based government in Tripoli. And so there are Libyan guards who are um, guarding them, who, you know, run the detention centres, uh, usually members of militias um, in, in actual fact. And so these guards, I don't know, did they go to join the fighting or did they run away? But either way, they had left. And so... What happened to that group kind of like highlights the the problem with this story of detention centers in that in one sense, the human rights abuses that happen inside them are so atrocious and so horrible. But in another sense, the people who are inside the detention centers actually don't want to be outside because the risks to them outside, they often see as being even greater that they could be kidnapped by traffickers, taken by militias, just killed in the streets. So... Um, so what had happened was that it was around 500 people were just staying inside this, uh, what they called a prison, this detention centre and, and too frightened to go out. And there was fighting on the streets outside them. They sent me photos proving that. Right. And these centres are run by the UN, basically. No. So the centres are run, uh, ostensibly, they're run by the Government of National Accord. So um the Department for Combating Illegal Migration is associated with them. And the UN does back that government. So I'm sure you know that Libya has um, effectively two governments, one in the east and one in Tripoli. So they're, they're supposed to be associated with the GNA, the Tripoli-based government. But actually a lot of them are run by militias, um, you know, who, who are usually affiliated with the GNA, but sometimes not. Right, so it's not run by the UN, but it's definitely associated the people that are running it. 
Yes, they're associated and also the UN works in uh, some of the centers, though they don't always have access to the centers, but they are, um, they do kind of provide aid and sometimes do evacuations. And that's also one of the arguments that the EU makes. So the EU, um, because it's involved in effectively returning people to Libya, when you ask it about how, you know, it could be responsible for these gross human rights abuses that are happening in the detention centres. It'll say, well, we are also funding the UN to try and provide aid and improve the situation. But actually, the UN doesn't always have access. And also the amount that they can do is incredibly limited anyway. Wow. Um, and maybe you can explain this, the uh, the conditions inside these detention centres. How are these people living? You know, you said they're hiding in there, but certainly from what I saw in your thread, things are bad, right? Yeah, um, yeah, so there's always around, like, I'd say between four and a half and six and a half thousand people in what I call the official detention centres, the run, ones run by DCIM. And as you said, the conditions are really, really horrific. And it's kind of strange because it's just like recounting a litany of horrors, basically. Um, and depending on the detention centre, there can be different major risks. Like in some of them, they might go days or even weeks without food or without water. Um in others, there might be a tuberculosis outbreak. So people could be locked in a room with people who are infected with tuberculosis and not given any fresh air. And, you know, tuberculosis spreads, like it can spread quite quickly in those conditions. Or in one detention centre called Zintan, 23 people died within about seven or eight months um, this year, like between last year and this year. And that was because there weren't any hospital referrals. They weren't getting proper medical treatment. And yeah, they were, were effectively being left to die. Um, and in others, people are really abused by the guards. So the guards or the management might be quite aggressive. Um, they might just deny them things to punish them, basically. Um, in some of them, there's a lot of torture, uh, you know, if if they're suspected of speaking to people outside or even if they speak to visitors, like visiting diplomats or visiting humanitarian workers, they might be tortured afterwards. Um, one detention centre, a man set himself on fire last year. So, and he died as well. So, yeah, it's it's strange because it's hard to sum up, you know, all the things that people have been, been victims of. But, yeah, like, you can imagine... Right, but so, so I know you said that you don't run this, they're linked to it, but surely are they not aware of this? Like they're basically backing up the people that are meant to be looking after the people and like you just said, torturing them inside these jail cells or, or these detention centres. Like are they even aware of this? Yeah, I mean the EU say that they advocate for the detention centres to be closed and, and the UN say that as well. Um, yeah, but but I mean... Of course, if the EU are supporting returns to Libya, then, you know, they're, <laughs> they're not really, like, they're the reason that these people are in these detention centres. Um, but, you know, their argument, they, they make a, they make an argument um, which act, in actual fact, what they're trying to do is stop people from arriving across the sea to Europe. But their argument is that they're trying to save lives because ships might sink in the Mediterranean. So... Um, what they can't do is use European vessels to return people to Libya. So the way that they've got around that 
Um, and because they can't do that under international law, the way that they've got around that is by supporting the Libyan Coast Guard instead to do the interceptions. Because if Libyan ships do the interceptions, then they legally can bring them back to Libya. Um, and the EU does use um, aerial support. Like it does, it does have other ways of telling the Libyan Coast Guard where the ships are so that they can be intercepted. But it doesn't actively... Uh, you know, do the rescues. It'll it'll make sure that it's Libyan ships doing the rescues. That sounds to me like the EU's idea of supporting these migrants is actually saying, like, you guys do the dirty work for us just so these people don't actually end up in the areas where we have control, i.e. Europe. I mean, would you do you think that's unfair or what? That's what it sounds like to me from hearing this. No, I think that's exactly what's happening. It's unbelievable. And what, what kind of... Uh, what kind of things are these people saying to you? You know, you said they're, they're calling you and asking you for help and what have you. What are they asking for? I mean, what can you do? Yeah, I mean, as a journalist, I'm I'm kind of quite clear very quickly to at saying, like, I can't help you. So anyone who contacts me, generally the first thing I'll say is that I can't help them because I don't want them to think that talking to me is going to lead to any improvement in their situation. But actually a lot of the people that I was speaking to and still speak to, they say that they haven't been able to get information out in such a long time that nobody's been listening to what's happening and that they feel like it's basically an out of sight, out of mind situation. And so um, they just want the stories told and, and they're willing to take risks and they have taken risks because people have been punished for um, for being suspected of having spoken to me. And, you know, and, and they are quite aware of that. But at the same stage, if someone's contacting you and says, you know, I want this story told, then... You talk through the consequences, but but you also kind of have a duty to help with that, I think, as a journalist. Um, and one of the things, to go back to what you were saying before, you will hear European politicians saying things like, you know, our policies have been successful because we've stopped people from dying in the sea, like the amount of deaths have gone down. And, um, you know, that that's something that I definitely had heard. But what I've realized while reporting on this is that nobody's actually measuring the number of people dying in detention centers. And so the people that I interview who are still detained, they say, you know, I'd rather die quickly in the sea than die slowly in a detention center where some people are locked up maybe for a year, maybe for two years. Um, and I actually asked, I, I was asked to the European Parliament to talk about this issue. And while I was there, I asked someone from the EU Commission whether they they are measuring the number of deaths or whether they know who is. And they said they don't know who is and that they're not doing it. So it really is like an out of sight, out of mind situation. Right. Well, well, if they don't know who's doing it and they're not doing it, that means no one is doing it, basically. Yeah. That's how it seems to me anyway. So the EU... Like, let me get this straight. This is this is mad. Like, the EU is basically, to fit their quota, we've stopped people dying in the sea and then allowing or at least facilitating them to then be sent back to the prison centres where people are dying, but then they're not recording the prison centres' deaths. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So they're basically perhaps sending people to their death in the prison centres. 
I mean, in some cases, they, they certainly are sending them to their death. And one of the stories that I just reported on was um, this woman called Fatima, who's from Gambia. And she was sent to, uh, so she was one of the people that was intercepted at sea. She was with her husband and her son and the husband had a heart problem. So they were actually, they had actually lived in Libya for quite a while, but they were trying to get across the sea to get him medical treatment. Um, and they got intercepted at sea, sent back, ended up in this detention center in town that I told you about. Her son died of appendicitis, so it was totally preventable. Um, he he died over three days, she said. And the whole time she was begging for him to get medical care and he wasn't taken out of the cell. Um, and after he died, a few weeks after he died, her husband died of a stroke, um, which... I spoke to medical professionals. They said that they believe it would have been a result of basically heartbreak over the son dying. And um, yeah, they like that was a family who like presumably the husband and the son would still be alive if they had not been intercepted by the Coast Guard and not locked up indefinitely. Jesus Christ. And I mean, it's maybe a dumb question, but why are they treating them so badly? Like the guards and that? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question, to be honest, because that's a, what I've been asking all along is like, what's in it for them? Like, why would the Libyan authorities consent to taking back all these people to Libya? And, you know, presumably for them, even if they treat them so incredibly badly, it's still an inconvenience to have all these people who don't want to be there locked up in your country, you know? And it it is a question that um, I think a bit more a bit more investigation needs to go into. But I know that they are benefiting in various ways um, that people pay them. So detainees can pay them and get out of the detention centers. They can also, um, sometimes the detainees are sent out to work. And from what I know, guards can take a cut off that. And in some cases I've documented, the guards will actually sell detainees back to traffickers. So um, like against the detainees, well, they'll literally just sell them back. And then when, when they're back with the traffickers, they're then held for ransom until the, um, until the families can come up with large sums of money, like up to $10,000, um, from what I've heard. And yeah, there's a, there's a whole kind of market going on here. Like it's, it's really business. And then since, um, so war broke out again in April. That's the war with, the. Uh General Haftar, right, and the, and the GNA and all the LNA and all that stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, so Khalifa Haftar in the East announced that he was going to take Tripoli and actually it's been, uh, it hasn't gone as well for him as he anticipated. But, um, but he announced that he was going to take Tripoli and most of these detention centres, they're actually in military bases because they're run by militias and... I guess it was like the most convenient place for them to start locking up migrants and refugees. So um, when the war started, that's where the military, like the militias are also coordinating their campaigns and migrants and refugees in at least five centres that I've interviewed have been taken out and used to either move weapons, to load ammunition, to clean military vehicles, or in some cases to fight. So in, in one sense, like they are kind of of use to the the militias, the GNA aligned militias, um, when something like that happens. <sighs> wow. I mean, this, this is mad. I mean, what else is there to this? Like, this sounds like 
there's a lot more to it. Do you know what I mean? It, your your investigation continues, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. I guess it's that's the thing. It's so complex because every day there's like a new kind of drama, and it's very hard to to real like. Yeah, it was it was hard for me at the start to realize the role that Europe is playing in this. Um, and how willfully they're kind of ignoring the consequences of that. And I've actually been speaking to Libyans lately. And I think it's worth saying, you know, in stories like this, like Libyans can be painted as being really terrible. And um, I've been speaking to Libyan aid workers and, and they, like some of them have been telling me, they're really trying their hardest to get access to these detention centers and to help the refugees and migrants but the problem is that they are being run by militias you know and the militias are dangerous and the militias will threaten Libyan aid workers as well as everyone else right and they're, they're making money off of this as well as you said you know in, in times of war you know disgusting as it is they're going to keep making their money if they can right yeah and I think that um, there's also questions to be asked as to whether this kind of EU deal is actually bad for Libya generally as a country because it is empowering militias rather than kind of the good, you know, good people who are trying to make the country better. Jesus Christ. But but again, this all seems to be like the EU just saying, well, it doesn't matter so long as they don't end up on our shores, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very hard to argue with that. It's like the same reason. I remember when they gave uh, Turkey something like a billion pounds or euros or whatever to, you know, build up these other um, detention centres in Turkey, so-called detention centres. You know, I've been in one of them, as you know, not the prisons. I'm on about the deportation prisons, like where they hold the migrants for months on end without, without telling them anything. There is serious abuse going on in there. And, you know, I've seen it. And they are not detention centres, you know, they're, they're prisons. It's just like, the, I don't know, man, the EU make me sick, honestly, they really do. It, it's one of them ones as well. Back home, people are like, well, it gives us this, that and the other and it fixed the roads. But it's like, well, what about these migrants that are dying in Libya, man? It's, I don't know, it must make you frustrated, no? Yeah, it makes me frustrated and it's been very difficult because it sounds so naive. But when I started working on this, I was like, oh, people might must not really know like the full um the full consequences, like the full detail of what's going on. But I think more and more I'm realizing that the important people do, but they're just not really, there isn't a political will to change this. And I guess because, um, you know, anti-migration, anti-immigrant sentiment has spread across the EU and threatened a lot of the governments. Like there is really big desire to just stop the number of immigrants um, and stop the number of refugees and migrants and yeah it, it's difficult I think one of the things also that um, has to be mentioned is the fact that the EU will say that they're supporting the UN to run an evacuation program and there is an evacuation program but it's very like the number of people being evacuated is very 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 low compared to the number who are stuck in this cycle of traffickers and smugglers and the sea and the detention centers. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's so little that it's not really effective. And there is an argument, which I wrote about um, last week or the week before, there that certainly aid workers that I've interviewed have been saying that um, the UN almost, they they argue that it's been whitewashing the situation because it's not speaking out properly about what is happening. And then it's 
essentially letting the EU say that they are trying to improve the situation by funding the UN. And yeah, they they argue that the UN should be really be standing up a lot stronger and, and refusing to kind of participate in this system that's really just so horrific. Well, yeah, Dave, I mean, that's, that's obvious, but I think it's clear, at least in the last five years, that the UN and the EU is largely toothless on the actual things they claim to be there for. You know, they, they claim to be able to protect people and do this. They don't really do anything, in my opinion, apart from protect their own interests. Um, it's, Sally, it's like a year since you started this. Have you seen your investigation make any difference? You know, I don't mean that in a in a crude way. I'm just saying, like, it's, it's such a big... Um, you know, monster that you're trying to come up against with the EU and the UN? Have you have you seen it make a difference? It's hard to say, to be honest, because like right at the start, when I started reporting on this, I think it was about a week or two after um, after I started, the UN, UNHCR, the refugee agency, they released a, an updated um, report saying that they no longer supported returns to Libya and they actually cited some of my reporting as part of that and that kind of made me feel quite positive that things might change like not just me of course like other people have been working on this issue too but I thought that maybe something might happen but yeah since then really not that much has changed at all and even like if you like some people have been evacuated some of my sources have been evacuated but the problem is still exactly the same and you know it, it's it's really difficult so yeah it is and these these are migrants trying to get from wherever they are whether they're trying to get through europe via libya right yeah and may sorry maybe i should clarify like which kind of groups yeah, are exactly. there so most of the people that I've been speaking to, they're Somalis, Eritreans, um, some Ethiopians, people from Darfur in Sudan, and they uh, come from what are recognized as kind of refugee producing countries. So um, they'd be more likely to actually get asylum if they applied for it. They're fleeing wars or dictatorships, things like that. There are others that come from countries in West Africa, like Nigeria, Gambia, Sierra Leone. Some of them have come for economic opportunity um, and they, you know, they, they could potentially go back home and some of them actually do end up going back home. So it is a mix but the real problem is obviously for the ones that can't return home. They're the ones that are just stuck in this cycle indefinitely. And one of the questions that I've got asked when I've been speaking to people about this is, you know, why do people keep going to Libya? But from my knowledge, there aren't that many going to Libya now. But the ones that are there have actually been there maybe for three, four or five years um, and because when they get to Libya, they get held by smugglers sometimes for up to two years. They're often sold between the smugglers. They can be tortured. You know, the families have to raise massive ransoms. And it's only at the end of that process that they're allowed to try and cross the sea to get to Europe. And that's the point when they get intercepted. Now, uh, they usually get intercepted by the Libyan Coast Guard. So at that point, then they go to the detention centers and they might spend another year, two years in some cases, uh, now longer in detention centers and so it's actually this very kind of lengthy uh, process and and it can be hard to differentiate at this stage between you know the people who have come from West Africa and the ones who have come from the refugee you know what are called refugee producing countries but yeah there are some that are just they just can't find any way out. 
Right. And did you know much about these, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were basically like open air, essentially slave markets in Libya, or at least this was a few years ago when I looked into it. You know, or any, when you say they're getting taken by the traffickers, is that where they end up? Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard about that from even people that I've interviewed, and I definitely saw the CNN video from a few years ago. Mm. Um, most of the stories that I've heard, they aren't that explicit, but like, yeah, of course, there's still forced labor exploitation. Um, yeah, people working for no money. Uh, guards, even the Libyan guards sending them out to work for people and then they take them back to detention at the end. Yeah, they do. I mean, they call it slave labor. I think the word is Abed is what they say that black Africans are called in Libya and it means slave. Um, and, and the women as well, I should mention that there are a lot of women in the detention centers. Like you never really see pictures of them because it tends to be more dangerous for them to be identified and, um, you know, they're also just a lot more worried about it. But women, I've heard a lot of stories where women get taken out to work in the houses of guards and then end up getting raped while they're there. And actually, it's almost, a, you know, a recognized thing that if you go to the house of a guard, you're going to get raped from what I've heard. Um, but they sometimes can't find a way out of it or else maybe their children haven't eaten for two weeks, even though they're inside a center and they're told this is the only way to get food, things like that. So... Jesus yeah. Christ, that is horrific. Um, and Sally, we're going to play some of the audio that, that some of the people have, have sent you at the end of this. Maybe you can explain, uh, just give a little bit of context to what they're going to hear. Yeah, so for the past 14 months now, people have been sending me clips either um, explaining the situation that they're in or just asking for help or also, um, I can't remember if I sent you these, but some of them have written songs and things, so... There are songs about their time in detention. Um, yeah. It's dark, man. Um, is there anything else you, you want to say, Sally, before before we wrap this up? Yeah, I think we should mention that there was a bombing. Um, this was when international media kind of paid a bit more attention to the situation. In July on the 2nd, there was a bombing of a detention centre called Tejora, which is in eastern Tripoli, and at least 53 people were killed in that though um witnesses have told me they think it was a lot more and and as we've said already there's not really a proper registration system so it's very hard to know who you know who's even killed or who was in each building um and yeah it, it was strange because actually detainees there had been warning that they were going to be targeted for months because they are in a military complex they were in one of the places where detainees were getting recruited actually to to actually fight um in the conflict and they there was like a weapons store like right beside them and um yeah they 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 pretty much knew that they were going to be targeted but nothing was done about it and eventually there yeah i remember this hit. how many people were killed again sorry they said at least 53 but yeah, w witnesses there tell me they think it was a lot more. Jesus Christ. And that was General Haftar hit with an airstrike, wasn't it? Yeah. And I mean, it, it was impossible to, from what I heard, to ascertain the exact death toll. Like even even refugees and migrants there, like they were kept in the area of the airstrike for about a week afterwards and said they ended up just cleaning up the body parts of the other detainees who had who they had known some of them. 
So it was really, really bleak. Jesus Christ. So, so they get hit by the airstrike and end up having to clean, like, their friends off the back of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, sorry, it's a bit... A bit um, no, yeah. I mean, people need to know how ugly this is, you know. And still, it, I, it just makes me mad, like, thinking about how the EU is facilitating this, you know. Again, it comes back to that thing of, you know, just look after ourselves, pretend that we're looking after everybody else when really... It's not the way, you know. I looked into some other stuff that the EU were doing in Africa before, and it's just unreal, man. Yeah. Um, anyway, Sally, uh, where where can people get hold of you? Where can people see this work that you're doing? I think it's excellent uh, investigation you're doing here. Uh, thank you. Um, so I've been just posting most things on Twitter, to be honest, on uh, Sally H A Y D um, on Twitter, and yeah, I guess look out for my byline in various publications it tends to move around right and you update your website as well in it what's what's that uh Sa- sallyhayden.net very remedial website but cool yeah. yeah all right brilliant thank you very much sally appreciate that thank you jake that was sally hayden speaking about the facilitation of Abuse of refugees by the EU and the UN in Libya. It's a very fucked up story and one that definitely deserves a lot of attention. Like I said in the episode, if you listen through to the end of this or skip past the outro here, we will include small snippets of the audio, some of the audio that the prisoners, the refugees that are getting abused have sent to Sally. One you can even hear basically in the midst of an airstrike, the Haftar airstrike that Sally spoke about. Uh, It's dark, but, you know, these things, I think you have to hear them. You have to know what's going on. This episode was sponsored by thedefensepost.com. Defense with an S. Check them out for reportage on the world in conflict. And if you like what we're doing, please do consider supporting us. This is all grassroots. Go to patreon.com slash popular fronts. You will get the episodes before anyone else. You will get bonus episodes, of which now there were like 41, 42, I think, or 40, I don't know. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on there and also we put up video snippets now and then you get to see the documentaries before other people And if you want you can go for the $10 and join the discord which has become this real kind of hive mind of research Loads of different people from all over the world contributing to some interesting projects um, via popular front patreon.com slash popular front if you want to see our latest documentaries, go to youtube.com slash popularfront. Subscribe, hit the bell. The Hong Kong documentary will be out by the end of the month, hopefully. I've got a lot of work on, so, you know, everyone's saying, oh, where is it? Well, mate, it's just me. So, yeah, hopefully it will be done. Uh, it should be done. It's on its way. But, yeah, youtube.com slash popularfront. On Twitter, we're at popularfrontco, or you can follow me, Jake underscore Hanrahan. That's spelled H-A-N-R-A. H-A-N Instagram it's instagram.com slash popular dot fronts now you will have to search the whole name if you just put popular like front it won't come up you have to put in the search bar popular dot front because we are shadow banned again by uh, Instagram which means basically they make it very hard for anybody to find your page you don't show up in search results unless your whole thing is typed out you don't come up in suggestions what they do is they basically you know hit you and say you're bad when we don't like you putting your content up but it's not bad enough for us to ban you so we do this sly snake thing that they do because they're fucking awful and owned by the devil zuckerberg but there you go instagram.com slash popular dot front uh, if you can't find that, it means we've been banned. The backup is popular dots, uh, popularfront.co. 
to support us and you can look cool whilst doing it if you go to the shop we have um new merchandise there there's this new hoodie the uh, clear water one it's like this pink hoodie with this water effect with popular front on the front it's like wavy it's cool man it's all right go to uh popularfront.shop so just type that in your search bar www.popularfront.shop we bought a url for it um thank you very much to the following people from the patreon they are adam berg snyder axel iverson azad brian mclaughlin callum ross chad walker christina rivetti christopher martin craig miller dan dunham daniel shearer david gilmore diana gorvanek e louise larson emiliano emily molly fletcher tate jack mayhoff james from the discord joanne stocker from Defence Post, uh, Joel Tambusi, Josh, Juan Hernandez, K. Hardy Roberts, Kyle N. Payne, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Lika Madik, Margaret Bowling, Maudi, Moody Al Rashid, Nate Van Dor, Noah, Ari from the Discord, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did and the Defiance podcast. He's got a new podcast actually, Defiance. I was on it. It's actually cool. I like what he's doing. I'm not actually, like, it is cool. Uh, check that out, definitely. Uh, Q-Ball Russia Alakidi Rohan Abare Ryan Sandercock Skartoon Music Sebastian from the Discord Sarushe Hawazi Stephen Davila Tom Lochrin Tony Bin Vida Provost and Zachary Hinch Thank you all very much for propping this up and keeping this going Music in this episode The intro was by Home and the outro was by Sam Black known as Son of Old his SoundCloud is soundcloud.com slash son dash of dash old. Now we will play the uh, audio that I spoke about. Um, it's not very nice. So yeah, just be warned. Have a listen. Hello, Sally. I'm from Zintan Detention Center. Uh, let me explain our situation. Our current situation is very uh, tragic as this time. The number of uh, TB patients increasingly weekly. Uh, a lot of patients are uh, suffering by anemia and malnutrition. Uh, we don't have a good uh, food. Uh, we are uh, eating just a small uh, macaroni in a small dish that is very uh, poor quality. So there is nothing is changed from the past week, uh, past months. The, even the number of diet uh, patients are increasingly to 23 within the past months. Now one. Uh, a guy is died uh, when he is referred in the uh, tropical hospital when he referred from the Zintan that mean he died uh, before a week ago so the number is increased to 23 uh, our station is very very uh, hard from time to time we are asking uh, and the uh, origin for locate from Zintan but nothing uh, response uh, we get from Venusar uh, or Ion. Just everything is voiceless. Our voice is voiceless. So uh, all people is in his detention. They, are, they need to uh, relocate from Zintan as soon as possible uh, because the situation is very, uh, very terrible. We are all spilled in, uh, spoiled in TV because in every week when they uh, make a check, just the uh, result of the TV. So uh, uh, every people are uh, in his tension. We are too afraid. Uh, we are in ter uh, terrible condition uh, there.
Hi, what's happening? Oh my god. Uh, 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 it was close to you. Was anyone hurt? Was anyone injured? Was anyone injured? Okay, don't worry. Wait a minute. Okay. I'll call you later, okay? Okay, bye. Okay, they are going to be praying for us. Okay, praying for you, yeah. Oh my god. Close, close it. Okay, okay, just close it for yourself.